Hello and welcome back to On The Continent, the only destination you need for all the big stories and latest football news from Europe. I'm Luke Moore. And I'm Andy Russell. Andy Brassel, you said that like you were quite surprised, but I'm very happy to be alongside you again today uh, for one of my favourite shows of the week, possibly sometimes even my favourite show of the week on the continent. How the devil are you? Yeah, I'm really good. Uh, I was quite conscious that you told me off for doing it in a, in a sort of Australian going high at the end of the sentence <laughs> uh, way last week, and you actually made me re-record it in a, yeah. a state of some anger. So I thought, how can I do it that's not a, oh, no, I'm Andy Brassel way yeah. that, that would, like, you know, potentially irritate you? I mean, the thing is, I, you've, you've basically earmarked me out as being bossy there, and I don't think the listeners <laughs> recognise that in me. I, don't, I, I, th- I think that's unfair. I don't think anyone would think. That would be quite surprising to people to hear that I'm quite bossy. Next thing you'll be telling me that I always tell you to get back from the mic. <laughs> I already did it. I already did it. Like I oh, felt the sub subconscious vibes. Um, but yeah, I, I'm in a sort of state of, you know, everyone has their ups and downs at the moment um, yeah. in, in this situation that we're in. Uh, there are two things that are making me feel slightly uneasy this morning. Firstly, the fact that that little reminder has popped up on my computer saying uh, OTC, um, at 9am traffic is moderate it will take 29 minutes to arrive um, which is is something I think we've all experienced uh, in, in our home working over the last little while the other thing is the retirement of Aritz Adarith which is oh yeah so sad inevitable but sad nevertheless well maybe if we get a bit of time we'll come to that a bit later on I completely forgot about that I did all the prep um, for the show late last night and checked the breaking news this morning and that's completely passed me by maybe we'll get a little mention of him and if we don't get time you can do a little mention of him uh, on socials Andy and and let let people know kind of exactly why that's so important Uh, yes we will we will one of the best um one of the best penalties you'll ever see against Villarreal where he just didn't take a single step run up. Do you remember that one? Yeah, I do. I thought you were going to say one of the best Super Cup goals ever where well, also that, that, that absolutely well, yeah. flayed Barcelona. There, there, there have been a lot of big moments from him, haven't there? Yeah, and he also has done all his best work uh, at the age of about 55. So, it's like <laughs> um, But we do have to start uh, proper the show proper in the Bundesliga again this week. We make no apology for that. It is in the vanguard of European football at the moment. There will be plenty of time to talk about some of the other leagues as well, but we're going to start in Germany. Um, one of the standout results came from the Westfalen Stadion uh, last weekend as Borussia Dortmund hammered. Uh, Schalke 4-0 in a result that I didn't necessarily think we'd see I thought it'd be a much cagier affair but given that the last time you saw Schalke play Andy they turned in a stinker of a performance losing 3-0 to an average Cologne side back in February presumably you saw this coming all along well firstly I'd like to congratulate you on marking yourself as not a Johnny come lately Dortmund fan by saying Westfalenstadion as opposed to Zignal Iduna Park so congratulations yeah. on that um uh, you've been there since the beginning. I know you have. Um, I, I, and... I, sometimes, Andy, I'll let you know how much of a fan of the club I am. I call them Borussia, 
not Dortmund anymore. <laughs> and also, occasionally, I drink out of a BVB mug when I'm recording this show. Now, I'm not doing that today. I'm drinking out of a Teenage Fan Club mug today. But last week, I was drinking out of a BVB mug. So that gives people a great indication of just how serious a fan of the club I am. And only one of those approaches has been coached by Uli Hesse, in fairness. Yeah, true. Yeah, uh, but, 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 you know, I guess we've talked about Dortmund uh, at some extent last week and th- th- they were excellent. I, th- I think that's clear to everyone who, who watched the game. And they were excellent, particularly when, I mean, you, you said about seeing it coming in terms of Schalke. The, the thing was with this opening weekend of the Bundesliga, and it'll be the same as all the leagues restart, you know, how much can recent form count for anything? Because recent form is most recent form. It's not actually recent yes. form, is it? Despite so even what though, Steve McManaman tells you. <laughs> so even though Schalke were going in, at seven without a win, the worst run in, in the Bundesliga, you thought, well, actually, the break might have worked quite well for them and quite well for David Wagner to give him some time to think on things, to give the players time to reflect on things, which you never really do at this sort of spring stage of the season. And I personally thought Schalke might get something because if you look at the absences for Dortmund, and of course you think of um, Royce, Zagadou, losing Gio Reyna in the, in the warm-up, who was going to make his um, full Bundesliga debut. Um, it was more about the absence for me of Axel Witzel and Emre Can because Emre Can has been 100%. excellent since, since, since he arrived. He's been so important. And you think... In a derby, is this the place where Schalke could take control of the game? Because they may, may not be the most exciting or most extravagant team, um, but maybe that's that's something that could work for them. Firstly, Modaud and who's been written off by a lot of people, and Thomas Delaney were excellent in, Agree, in the yeah. middle. But um, let's come on to Schalke because they were truly terrible. They were as bad as Dortmund were good, and. Um, you know, I've I've defended David Wagner when he's been discussed on um, the Discord on on Patreon and when um, people have sent in uh, tweets and, and and mails around the show. They've said, "Well, David Wagner finished very badly at Huddersfield. I think there has to be questions over him with Schalke's form." And I'd always said, "Well, look, it's a natural leveling off because." The squad is really not that good. If you look at the players next to the players that Dortmund have got, when we talked about Gio Reyna getting injured in the warm-up, they brought in Torgan Hazard, who, who was brilliant, I have to say, pr- probably the best player on the pitch for, for most of the game. So um, I, I think Wagner needs time to be able to restructure the squad. And where they were at the turn of the year, I think was unrepresentative of what they actually are. And Wagner has been acutely aware over the whole season that he's working towards something rather than working with what he actually wants to work with at at the moment. But this was really the first time um, that I thought, hang on, what's he, what's he doing here? And when he, at halftime, when they were two nil down and he brought on Bergstaller and Rabbi Matondo, you think, well, he's going for it here. And I understand because it's a derby, but there's still 45 minutes left you're not going to get back into the game or you're, you're not going to really get back into the game probably in the first 10 minutes of the second half, but you could definitely lose the game in the first 10 minutes of the second half. And that's precisely what they did. They left themselves so open to the counter-attack. And I think Wagner should know better, to, to be honest, because 
you know, he's a former Dortmund player. He knows what Dortmund are about and, and coach. He knows what Dortmund are about. Um, it was almost as if he was taken in a little bit by the atmosphere of the derby, even though obviously a lot of people watching on television will say, well, there wasn't any atmosphere. That's not the way Wagner approached it before the game. You know, he was asked about it in the in the virtual press conference and he was asked how he was going to get up for it. And he's like, oh, come on, bottom line, it's a derby. It's the Rafir derby. Come on. Of course we're going to be up for it. And I think in his mm. case, he's maybe a little bit too up for it. Yeah, I found that um, the, the key point um, I feel like you mentioned there was the central midfield area because if, if all things being equal, as you said, um, Lucien Favre would have wanted to play Jan and, and, and Witzel in there. He had neither to, at his disposal. And given that Weston McKenney and um, the other midfield player, Serda, and the midfielder for, for Schalke are quite physical, you think they were trying to assert their dominance like, early on, but they, they weren't really able to do that. And it just got to the point where every area of the pitch they were second best. And if you take into account that Dortmund had 60% of possession, yet they still won loads more tackles than Schalke did, it shows mm. you, it shows you kind of, that's quite indicative, I think. But you're absolutely right. Borussia Dortmund are a better team. And and and, and I suppose that's that. The, the reason I perhaps had a question mark over the um, over the game going into it about whether Dortmund, Borussia Dortmund could win was just, well, a couple of reasons. One was because they wouldn't have the crowd behind them. And that crowd is, is more important Immense. to them arguably than a crowd is, is to any other club in Europe. And secondly, because it's, the conditions are so different. You never know how teams are going to react and how they're going to cope with the conditions. Um, so I wondered whether we'd see a lack of intensity overall, but I don't think we did, actually. Uh, no, I, I don't think we did. And I think after a tentative little 15 minutes or so at the beginning, which is entirely normal, um, it, it was a credit to them, just as it was a credit to a lot of players and coaches across the Bundesliga, I thought I thought the level of play overall the weekend was way higher than we had any right to expect. And yeah. and, and Dortmund were at the forefront of that. Uh, and, and you have to congratulate them for that. Um, well, Andy, I don't, and I I guess, don't think... Um, well, one, sorry, Matt, I was just going to say, I don't think um, one player whose, whose level of play wasn't higher than we expected <laughs> was uh, poor old Marcus Schubert and the Schalke goal, was it? Um, well, you know what? I love the way that you've found a way to attack him through two different episodes of podcast this week. <laughs> well, uh, if I'm given the opportunity, I will take it. Uh, he's, look, look, listen, the reason I want to talk about him is because it's it's a, a kind of peripheral part to what's really an interesting story developing in Germany at the moment. And we all love a, a soap opera, particularly on this show. Um, Schubert's only 21. And he's playing because Alex Nubel has agreed to move to Bayern Munich. And we covered that earlier in the season. Um, we got some tremendously exciting news on that front this week in the shape of a new contract for Bayern Munich's Manuel Neuer. Now, Andy, before you come in on this, let me very quickly bring listeners up to speed in like a bullet point fashion about this story so far, because I think it's a fascinating one and it's got a potential to be absolutely explosive. So in January, Schalke goalkeeper Alex Norberts just said, agrees to sign for fierce rivals Bayern Munich in the summer in a move that uh, caused what, (laughs) this is great, in a move that caused what at least one news outlet called civil war at both clubs. (laughs) Uh, Love that. As I've mentioned, that's partly because they're rivals, partly because this has happened before, obviously with current Bayern keeper Manuel Neuer, who angered Schalke fans so much that one of them slapped him in the face after a German (laughs) Cup win in 2011. And also because it'll be a free transfer, so Schalke won't get any money. Uh, David Wagner... um, 
spoke to Newball in what he called a short conversation, in quotes, and told him he wouldn't be playing in goal for the club anymore, and hence Marcus Schubert. When asked about Newell's move, Neuer said he had no intention of, in quotes, fading into the distance at Bayern Munich uh, and was less than forthcoming when asked if he would help Newell settle in. And to make things even more interesting, rumours have abounded that Newell's contract at Bayern contains a clause that he must start at least 15 games of the season. So fast forward to this week, Neuer signs a new contract at Bayern. And so they're going to have two quite headstrong quite um, confident goalkeepers playing at the biggest club in Germany. Now, rumours of a brand new Netflix sitcom featuring both players living in a house together (laughs) are at the time of recording unconfirmed, but we'd very much like to see that. Uh, Yeah, I I think you've covered most stuff there, apart from uh, the David Wagner bit where um, he told Nubel he wouldn't be playing in goal for Schalke anymore because... Uh, you're talking about us being um, in Germany for at the match at the end of February and, and me going to see uh, Schalke being spanked at uh, Köln. But Nubel did play in that. The reason he was left out is because he was terrible. It, it, his form fell through the floor. Yeah. And there was this incredible bit at the end where all the, uh, so, uh, all the players go to the supporters, you know, win, lose or draw and, thank them for coming they're very big on that in germany obviously you can't not do that culturally and as newbell approached the visitor section they all started chanting newbell aus newbell aus oh, really? newbell out so um yeah i mean he, he basically threw in the third goal in that game and it, he's been having a, a terrible time i mean a lot of people in in germany have found this um, transfer quite hard to understand and that's why I think the rumour about the 15 goal, uh, fifteen games a season or he has to play the cup games clause came up because you're like a young goalkeeper who's developing who could push into the Germany squad why would he go to the one place in the Bundesliga where he's kind of guaranteed not to get a game and obviously the mm. reason this sparked off um, ructions at Bayern is because there's no way Neuer was going to voluntarily say, oh, yeah, okay, I'll sit. I'll, I'll sit for the cup games. So that, that was never going to happen. And that definitely affected the way that contract negotiations went because it meant that Neuer was particularly hardline on what he wanted in terms of length of contract, in terms of pay. Now, in that sense, I don't know the exact details of Manuel Neuer's contract, But the coronavirus crisis has maybe worked in Bayern's favour in getting this deal done because maybe it means that Neuer took a step back and thought, okay, well, maybe I've got to drop my demands financially. And that is the basis for a compromise. Now, it was clear when Karl-Heinz Rummenigger spoke after the win at Union Berlin at the weekend when he said, I feel confident. And then Neuer came out and said, I feel confident that we're going to get a deal done, that we knew it was close because they had been absolutely poles apart if we go back like, but probably four or five weeks, not long. So um, it was clear that, that something was happening, but it leaves Newbell in a really weird position now. I mean, he can't get in the Schalke team and not only because he's moving on. I think they probably are doing the right thing in um, allowing Schubert to make his mistakes. And by goodness, he's taking that opportunity to make those mistakes at the, at the moment. <laughs> um, at but, least there's no fans to get on his back. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, quite. Uh, but what, what's what's he going to do next? You know, now Neuer is extended. He's one of the absolute big dogs at, at, at Bayern. But where does this captain, leave Nubel? Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. and, and he's considered, despite being a Gelsenkirchen boy, to be someone who's, you know, like, like Bayern DNA almost, which we know that they're so enormously big on. So that, that is a, that is a bit of an issue. And I think the thing is as well, when you, when you look at the current squad that, that Bayern have, you look elsewhere and you think, well, Sven Ulreich isn't saying, right, well, I'm, I'm just going to chip off then. So, no. you know, is, is Newbell going to be third choice goalkeeper? I mean, if he is looking for a way to get a game, there was an amazing story this week in, in Germany and Schalke are making their play to become the new Hertha Berlin. Seeing as Hertha are now quite successful, they won at the weekend in their first game under Bruno Labbadia. So they um, did well from the OTC G up, I think uh, we, yeah. we might say. That's well worth um, putting it. Yeah, it is one way of putting it, and we'll stick to that. But um, some Schalke youth team players are in big trouble because someone organised a sort of rogue footy tournament in Oberhausen in uh, on, on on social media, and a load of Schalke academy players said, "All right, let's let's put together a team and go." And they got this caught is a FIFA by the- tournament, right? No, this is this is actual outdoors in Oberhausen. Oh like two hundred. Right. Well, that's gone down well then. Two hundred people turned up, and it got broken up by the police. And these Schalke Academy players are in real shit. David Bagger so, um, needs to get a handle on this. Yeah, he needs to bad. start cracking the whip. This is unreal. It's it's pretty it's pretty bad. It's pretty bad. It's just like so, a football ramble daily when I'm on holiday. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, you know, maybe maybe Nubel ends up playing in nets for them at Power League. Who knows? Yeah. Well, look, I, I was going to actually. I won't bother now because you've already answered the question. I was going to wonder whether because there's no fans at the team at the games at the moment, whether um, Wagner's having a sleepless night or two, wondering whether to put Nubel back in. Um, but clearly, he's not going to do that. Um, let's uh, look ahead to the weekend then. And, and one game that stands out to me is the Berlin derby on Friday night. Mm. Which comes to you live on BT Sport from the Olympia Stadion, so that'll be worth a watch. Andy, you might well be doing comms on the radio for that. Are you commentating on the radio for that? Uh, no, I'm I'm on BT for that actually. Oh, okay, great. Well, there you go. Definitely watch BT then, because Andy will be in there. Um, obviously, it's a huge game, and not least because it was you know one of the fiercest atmospheres in the first half of the season anywhere in Europe. Um, the, the return fixture. Um, this will be different for obvious reasons. Actually, do you know what? In fact, in an episode of At the Match back in November, Andy. You were there for Football Ramble Daily, weren't you? At, yes. Um, the, the brilliantly named stadium at the Old Forester's House for Union versus Hertha. Let's just listen now. We'll, we'll drop a bit of audio in. Let's listen to how incredible the atmosphere um, was there.
incredible, amazing, uh, amazing to hear. And Union ran out one 0 winners thanks to an 87th minute penalty from Sebastian Polter, and it was a very dramatic affair. Um, Andy, I mean, can this return fixture live up to that? How do you anticipate it unfolding, unfolding in light of the, uh, the sort of difficult circumstances the game is going to be played under? It's impossible for it to unfold in that way, and maybe it would have been because at the Olympia Stadium even with fans, though, wouldn't it? <laughs> well, can you throw a firework that far with a running track? I think that's yeah. got to be the question, hasn't it? Yeah, because really, exactly. I remember a little bit about the football and a lot about the fireworks. I'll stick a couple of pictures up on um, Instagram for for the Ramblers to see this week um, because it was a really arresting spectacle, and. Um, there was a, a moment at the end, which I think we described at, at, at the time, where um, the Union players were celebrating their win and Hertha fans started firing um, uh, rocket fireworks at them and chucking stuff at them from all the way up the other end. And, um, you know, the Union players were not happy about this. And some uh, masked hoodlums from out the Union end started to climb the fence get onto the pitch and um, move towards the, the Hertha fans. You thought, oh, hang on, we've got, we've got a problem here. And then it was brilliant. Uh, Rafa Gikovic, the, 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 the team's Polish goalkeeper, who will be leaving at the end of this season as it happens, he just came across and he said, no, you can't do that. And he made them all get back into the stand. <laughs> and yeah, apparently, yeah. apparently uh, Rafa's a, an, an interesting guy, I hear. That sounds wicked, and as so, I mean, I'm pleased that 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 was that that potential disaster was averted. But I mean, 2010-11 was when they first played each other. It's quite a recent rivalry. Mm. This um, Union did Union beat Hertha in in the second division in in 2011 in that massively attended game at the Olympia Stadion. Yeah, there were like seventy five thousand people there. It was it yeah, was it was, a, right. it was amazing. So this was the, the atmosphere first was good time. then. Then was it? Because I've never seen the atmosphere that good at um, Olympia Stadium. I've been there a few times. But the, the atmosphere was different to how it was this season, because yeah. I, I think you, you've got to bear in mind that that is really a, a almost a turning point in the relationship between the two clubs, or certainly between their supporters. Because until 2010-11, Luke, they've not played each other competitively. Um, yeah. and, and they're both in the Bundesliga Zwei at this point with the feeling that Hertha is slamming it and Union are kind of punching above their weight at the moment. You know, Bear in mind that this is only a year or two after their supporters fix a couple of thousands of their supporters in shifts, fix up the stadium so they can meet the licensing conditions to, to yeah. stay in the league. So, um, and, and they end up going away to the Olympia stadion and winning. It's, it's, it's an incredible story. And one of the most incredible stories in, in, in recent um, Berlin football, but th- things have changed so much now because whereas this may be Union's first season in the top flight, that, that was the point at which, Hertha had to say, oh, actually, you know, maybe maybe they're not the little brother from down the road. Maybe it's a club that's that's going places. And from there, I think um, Union have some sort of international appeal now, don't they? You know, I, I think they oh, communicate sure, yeah. they communicate their image very well. I think a lot of people are really into the the ideas and the ethos of the, the club as well. And especially as Hertha have, we were saying last week, really, th- this season in particular have been the... after. After after years of just being kind of nondescript, rattling around in that that massive old stadium, they've sort of become the punchline to every Bundesliga joke this season. So um, for this to be on, 
And of course, the atmosphere in the stadium will be chalk and cheese compared to Alton first arrived back in, in, in November. But Union have got a genuine chance of finishing above Hertha in the table, which would be the cap on what has been a pretty fraught season for, for Hertha. With that said, Bruno Labbadia, the fourth coach of the season. That's right, fourth coach of the season. <laughs> I, mean, I think only Swansea are in, in, in the back end of their top flight days only ever managed three in a season. Um, Bruno Labbadia is, to my mind, a very, very good coach, as, as, as we were saying the other week. And um, great start for him, notwithstanding the Abisevich hugs, um, after after the second goal, I mean, presumably he thought after the whole Salomon Kalu handshake thing that well, I can't be any less popular. Let's just let's just get involved. It's fine, and um, we should make clear as well that whereas hugging after goals is not encouraged, it's meant to be all elbow bumps and and what have mm. you. That it's it, it's just advised against. By, by by the DFL, by the German League. It's it's not a yellow cardable offence or, or anything like that. And um, we saw Leverkusen at Werder Bremen getting stuck in as they started to rack up the goals on on, on Monday. They, they they had hugs as well. But um, Abisovic actually had a really good game. 35 years old, not perhaps had the career he wanted because of injury, but he's a really smart finisher. He's a really smart player. And... Um, him together with Cunha, the Brazilian who they got from from Leipzig, is really interesting. I mean, he had a really good second half, didn't he? When we saw them at, at Dusseldorf uh, back in February, he really came yes, into that game. He and did, he's someone yeah. who, having been peripheral at Leipzig, is clearly enjoying being the cock of the walk at at um, Hertha. And he's he scored a, another like absolutely terrific goal to to set the seal on that that win at, at Hoffenheim. So. I would have to say that Hertha are favourites for this. You never looked at them and thought they're really constructed for a relegation battle. But the plus is they've got enough quality that they've just about managed to keep themselves away from it. And it's, I mean, it's very difficult to see them going down now. And that's not just because the bottom three are terrible. Yeah, and if they win against Union, they won't be in a relegation battle because they'll probably be about 11 points off relegation. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, it's a big game for them. Um, I thought it was a bit unfair for Leverkusen to celebrate in that way against Werder Bremen because everyone racks up the goals against Werder Bremen. Modric, Janine tar bollen, Baccio har bara Skilacci framåt och spela till. Lyckas med det. Janine, Donadoni och bra skott. Och det är du och Skilacci och vår! Right, over in Serie A, um, clubs have been given permission to return to full training from Monday, and it now looks like the league may be set to return on June 20th. This is the first time full squad training 
Uh, sorry, yeah, full squad training has taken place since the league was suspended in Italy on March the 9th. Now, 16 Serie A clubs voted for a June 13th return, but the government officially ruled out sporting events until at least the 14th, meaning uh, June 23 start is more likely. And in breaking news this morning, the Italian Football Federation set a deadline of August 20th for the completion of the current season and a September 1st start date uh, for the following campaign. And that applies to the top three uh, leagues in Italy. They're going to have a, some kind of contingency plan involving playoffs and a coefficient system should they need it. But Andy, my first question to you on this is how does this chime in with UEFA's stated aim of wanting to finish European competitions in August? And and, and also, is, is this August 20th deadline something that is available to Premier League clubs as well in theory? Yeah, it is in theory. I think there's a difference between stated aim and what turns out to be realistic. And when there's been talk in various media outlets um, about UEFA's various deadlines, they've been desired deadlines. They've never been hard and fast, right, you are going to do this by then. And I think they like everyone else is, is is sort of learning on the hoof and the the, the fact is we we, t- we talked about it again and again it's it's impossible to have a one size fits all approach for for all of europe in in, in this crisis and obviously italy's been more affected than most what i do think is an issue in this and with it's the difference between um Ministry of Health recommendations and what a football federation knows is um, practicable and, and workable. Um, giving them the time to finish and saying that's actually when it will finish are two different things. There's no way you are having one season finish on finishing on August 20 and another starting on September 1st. And that's what Italy needs to think about. The thing that really force the hand of of France. And I know people will say, okay, well, um, the, the French League had a plan to finish and it was the government that swooped in and said, you're starting to sound you like Jean-Michel Jean 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 mate. <laughs> it's gone, yeah? Accept it. Look, look, I've taken a lot of insults over the years from you. <laughs> Kept pretty quiet up till now. But, but, but let's park it there, all right? <laughs> That's too far. <laughs> I I think it's unrealistic to say that the government actions aren't at least partly informed by public feeling and public includes the players their citizens and taxpayers like everyone else and what the LFP did very badly is not get the players and the coaches on side and when you got to the point where they were saying okay we're going to finish this season, and then we're going to start another one three weeks later. I mean, that's the point at which you lose the players, I think. Um, you know, uh, they can be talked around and convinced, and you can offer them extra concessions, and you can offer them extra detail when it comes to health and safety. And generally, rightly or wrongly, um, players tend to move as a group. You know, I think there is a degree of peer pressure there. But when you lose all of them, which they pretty much did when they said you're going to have three weeks off and not even three weeks off, three weeks pause between two seasons. I mean, that's when it just became totally unworkable. And it's Italy if can't go forward with such a small gap between seasons. 
let me let me kind of just play a bit of devil's advocate there because I assumed when I read this that they were almost well I assumed two things one was that they were going to use this March 9th through to um whatever it was um whatever Monday is end of May as almost as an ersatz kind of pre-season kind of and a break now I know I know I know that there's a controversy around whether that can be considered a break or not and we've talked about that before and about the stress that's involved and and mm. is it you know can, can it realistically be considered? I'm not saying I no, agree. It can't. I'm saying that's probably no. yeah, that, but but I'm not I'm I'm not sure that I think that's probably what they're trying to do. But the second thing I was, I just assumed there would be concessions made around squad sizes and substitutions and stuff to make it um, to make it possible. Because one thing you haven't mentioned, of course, is that we're currently scheduled to have a summer tournament as well. Now I know most players aren't international players, but all the top players are by definition. So they're going to have to carry on through the summer as well. So mm. I mean, how do you how do you think that's going to be amended then? Um, oh, there have to be some concessions made on next season. I, I think that's that's pretty clear. Mm. Um, whether that means domestic One cup competitions are, or something. Yeah, or whether that means domestic cup competitions are paused. Um, right. Th- there has to be something done. I mean, you can't ask players to have like, you know, a week's holiday be- between seasons and, and then have a, have a really truncated pre-season after that. I think it's totally, it's totally unrealistic and it's, it's quite unhealthy for the game. All right. Well, look, look, while we're in Italy, should we take a look at a few player stories as well then? Um, Let's start with Mira Lempianic, who's been in the news because he's attracted the attention of both Barcelona and Chelsea. This is partly due to the fact that Maurizio Sarri wants to re-sign Jorginho, because of course he does, and uh, Juventus need to move players on anyway. Um, Andy, Pjanic has three years left in his contract. He's not going to be cheap. But will we at some point see Pjanic on the streets of Barcelona or Chelsea anytime soon. <laughs> it's all in the delivery, that one, and it never gets old. Um, the great thing is no one under the age of like 30 is even going to get that. So it's a waste for many of our listeners. But No, and I, and I guess most of them, given his current fettle, would probably refuse on principle to go back and listen to any of yeah. Morrissey's old music. And it also gave me pause for thought, I have to say. <laughs> Pjanic is a really interesting one um, he's been a favourite player of mine for a very long time he's a favourite of a lot of coaches of a lot of players that he plays with I mean if we go back to a, a little while to what, last weekend where there was this uh, transfer story in sport and they, they claimed that it was totally agreed that um, for Nelson Semedo um, Barcelona would be paid Pjanic plus Matteo Di Cilio plus 25 million euros. <laughs> I, I, I was like, I, I read it. I read it four times because I'm like, this can't <laughs> be right. This can't be right. But it, it turns out it's not. But right. um, Pjanic is, is, is someone who, no, no one who knows him well can doubt his skill and can doubt his value in the right team. And you can see why he's the fit with Barcelona. Now, as the stories developed in recent days, the claims from people connected to Pjanic's camp were that he won't consider Paris Saint-Germain, for example. He would only consider going to Barcelona. And yeah, Barcelona is a really sexy prospect, but it's also a team, I suspect, where he can see himself being a sort of, I guess, a neo-Javi 
or something like that because people will look mm. at him and say he's not big or strong or athletic enough to be a defensive midfielder. But I tell you what, as someone who, and Sarri flagged it at the start of the season, someone who he, he wanted to get 150 touches a, a, a game, is, is someone who could play that sort of, that sort of conduit role you know, a different sort of player in, in, in front of the defence. And I, I think that would, that would work really well. And and just like Pjanic can play a little bit further forward, just like Xavi played a little bit for, further forward in the Euro 2012 final, doesn't mean they, they always should. I think the issue that exists with Pjanic, you have to try and work out in your head whether it's a... Pjanic issue generally about him as a player or whether it's a Pjanic at Juventus issue because I think Sarri has got to the point and we'll, we'll never know because of the point of the, the season paused but it seemed as if he'd come to a point where he thought you know what maybe he's not in my best 11 anymore the fact that he, he dropped him after he was pretty poor in the away defeat at Lyon in the Champions League. And then he wasn't in the team that, that beat Inter behind closed doors. Um, and I think if you go back a little bit further, that lack of pace and athleticism becomes an issue. You look at some of the mistakes that Pjanic has made and some of the poor performances that Pjanic has put in earlier in the season. I think he was shown up in the games against Lazio where they lost. And I think mm. if you go back to the game against uh, Verona, where they're in control of that, and the, the winning goal is Pjanic losing the ball like just outside the edge of his own box. And, you know, this is maybe the point where Sarri starts to think, oh, actually, maybe this is unsustainable. Maybe he's not my Jorginho or, or, or mm. what, what, I, what I want him to be. So, but, but the question is, is that, a problem with Pjanic or is that a problem with the composition of Juventus midfield? Because, you know, we're talking about Emre Can earlier. One of the reasons that another very, really skilled midfielder who's worked out to be brilliant in another team's context and in another team's system, would that happen with Pjanic? Because the problem for Juventus, and we know they're rocking this ridiculously heavy squad that presumably, particularly in the current environment, they can't go on doing even though, quite surprisingly, they're offering and close to agreeing, it seems, a new contract with Paolo Dybala. The question is, is it because Juventus have too many of the same type of midfielder? I mean, as he's got older and he's received a contract extension, it's clear that Blaise Matuidi has become more rather than less important to them. And I guess you have to ask, should that be the case as he's getting into his 30s? Simply because he's more athletic than anyone else in there. It's a very skilled, but very one-paced midfield. And I think Aaron Ramsey kind of factors into this as well, really, because, you know, they had this idea, Juventus, when they signed him, and it was one of the things that would potentially have forced out Dybala, that they were going to use Aaron Ramsey behind Cristiano Ronaldo as kind of this different style, de facto, late run into the box, number 10. Um but clearly they picked up Aaron Ramsey because it's a very Juventus sort of deal because you're getting a player of high collateral value for not much. Clearly they're paying out on a signing on fee and 
Um, that they're paying on big wages, but they didn't have to pay a transfer fee for him. And it's been speculated for a number of months now, maybe having done that, they would maximise the value of Ramsey by flipping him back to, say, a Premier League club or whatever. But this midfield has needed work for a long time. It's needed variety for a long time. The strengths elsewhere in the team have sort of covered that. So, like I said, going back to the original question, we, we have to ask, is Pjanic genuinely on the wane or would he look much better out of the context of out of the context of the current Juventus midfield and in a different context? And <clears throat> excuse me, you um but presumably you think he's more Barcelona is a more likely destination for him than Chelsea though. Yes. Yes. And okay. I, that's that'll I think, be disappointing to Chelsea fans. Yeah, and I, th- I think... I think he might struggle but, in the Prem, though. You know yeah, that? That's it, a really you know, kind of parochial you know, thing to say. Well, yeah, and and certainly you have to look at the the, the players around him. Who would who would help him out? Um, mm. I suppose N'Golo Kante is, is, is the obvious one, but he's had, not entirely by his own fault, obviously, but he's had his weakest season in English football to, to date, hasn't he? Um, mainly because of injury and he started to become I don't know if you, you can't say he started to become peripheral because at the end of it he is N'Golo Conte and you can only judge him on, on on when he's totally fit but if Pjanic is too reliable too reliant on the other players around him then I think you have an issue now not only might he be a better fit at Barcelona and if he believes he's a better fit at Barcelona and he's a willful guy. He's someone who's known his own mind since he was a teenager. He's not someone who you're going to say to, right, you're moving to this place, and he's going to go, right, okay. He's not one of those players at all. Um, the, the fact is, not only might he think he's a better fit for Barcelona, might, Barcelona might think he's a bit better fit for them, but Barcelona are bonkers in the transfer market. So <laughs> the second part almost doesn't come into it. Yeah, fair point. Um, all right, quickly then, let's move a couple, couple through, couple through a couple more players. Sorry, uh, Moise Ken uh, apparently attracted attracting the interest of Roma, despite only signing for Everton fairly recently. Um, this is presumably because Everton aren't that impressed with him, and also he's not really settled. Although it is early days, and he's obviously still a very young man. Any legs in this one? Do you think? I, I, th- I think maybe um, he has struggled to settle, and I think you have to again factor in his his personal career arc here because the fact is he left Juventus somewhat reluctantly because he felt he wasn't going to get an opportunity. Now, to take a step down to get an opportunity and then not get that opportunity because Everton is a step down from Juventus. I'm sorry, we will be receiving no mail on that at all or no tweets <laughs> on that. Um uh, that must be incredibly hard to accept, especially for someone of that age. And I know you can talk about um, time needed to settle and adapt to a new league and all that sort of stuff. And I do sense a little bit of impatience from the the club side as well. You know, when he um, contravened the early days of, of lockdown, it was sort of taken as a bit, well, you haven't earned the right to do that because you haven't played well enough this season which is a ridiculous way of looking at it but it seemed to have been set up certainly through from a certain media perspective as oh well here he is letting Everton down again almost as if and you know we know this is done in every country if a club wants to get out a story about a player 
it can be presented in a certain way. And Real Madrid have certainly done that with players that they've wanted to get rid of before, Meza Ozil being being one of them. Like this idea of, oh, well, you know, the club have really got no option but to sell him because, you know, this is just the, the latest in a long line of occasions in, in which he's let down the club, which is totally unfair, obviously, because mm. we've seen far more established players go through a, a, a similar situation like Jack Grealish or Kyle Walker and, you know, their their futures haven't really been, their futures at club level haven't really been been put into question. But that, that to me, is what suggests that Everton would be as amenable to this as Moise Ken himself might be. All right, we have to follow up to our chat from last week on the immediate future of Olympic Marseille and more specifically, everyone's favourite wanderer, the Dion of football, Andre Villas-Boas. Earlier this year, AVB said his future was intrinsically linked to that of sporting director Andoni Zubazareta. Well, guess what's happened, everyone? Yep, <laughs> Zubazareta's done the off, leaving uh, AVB standing there in the breeze holding little Andre. Um, throw uh, a refusal from goalkeeper Steve Mondonda to participate in a photo shoot promoting next season's kit, and you've got yourself a heady brew. Um, ultimately, Andy, we expect AVB to be gone by the time Monday comes around. Is that fair? Maybe. I expect Come on, be, give me I some ex- of that sweet sugar. <laughs> I expect him to be gone at some point. What I would like to say is that um, Marseille and Zubi Zaretta, I think, should now be considered as full friends of the Ramble because if you're going to break some news immediately after the release of a podcast, at least have that news backing up what the content of the podcast was. Yeah, I mean, great. It's textbook. It didn't undermine it's, us in any way, did it? No, it didn't. It made us look brilliant, actually, didn't it? <laughs> uh, uh, and, and so thank you to everyone involved. Um, is it chaos over there, Andy? Because I mean, I yes. said that a bit about Steve Mondonda. I mean, I don't understand why that's relevant to what's happening, but it appears that it is for some reason. It looks like it's just absolute mutiny. It is relevant because Jacques-Henriet is, is really struggling to keep control of the president of his club at the moment. And um, so much comes from the top, obviously. Strong leaders um, suggest control. And the fact that, you know, Andre Villas-Boas has reiterated on not just one occasion, but on several occasions, that if Zuby goes, I go. I mean, you presume the next thing is coming now Aero is in a bit of a difficult situation because because of FFP and stuff yeah but but like specifically with the Zubi Zaretta Villas-Boas thing because Frank McCourt made a big deal or the club made a big deal of how Frank McCourt phoned Villas-Boas in um, the immediate aftermath of Zubi Zaretta going uh, to offer Villas-Boas a new contract a contract that he knows he's not going to say yes to. So the question is not if Villas Bursch is going, but when he's going. And who's going to lose the most face from this? Because Ehol might have a mutiny from the players, and he really might have, because basically he's asked them all to take a substantial pay cut. And a lot of them have said, well, we've just qualified for the Champions League against the odds. Why are we going to get a pay cut? I'd love to have been there for that, that conversation. Exactly. So he's probably the... just coming in to congratulate us. Don't worry about it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. He's probably just coming in to talk about how great we've done. Right? Does everyone want to sit down? <laughs> bear in bear in mind, Ehl is. 
the president who was barred from the dressing room by Dimitri Payet back in November. He's like, we don't want to see you in here anymore. Just get out and don't come okay, back. I'd like, to have been the, I'd like to have been there for that conversation as well. <laughs> so presu- presumably, Ejo is like uh, uh, sort of at the at, at, in the drive of some of these players' houses while they're up in the balcony, you know, Rene and Renata style with a guitar. Uh, it's like, oh, this is the best. <laughs> That's not a reference anyone's going to get either. Come on. Come on. You've all got Google. Uh, and so, <laughs> you know, this is this is a bit where they, they sort of come to the balcony and you think, oh, my heart's going to be won back here. And Steve Mundunder and Dimitri Payet are all thinking this is the bit where he's, he's going to, He's going to win our hearts back. And he goes, he rolls up a newspaper and goes, fancy a pay cut. I mean, I mean <laughs> that, that's basically what's happening. So, yeah. um, hands up, who wants a pay cut? <laughs> so, the departure of Villas Boas is it's about choreography. It's not about whether he's going because the club want to do it with as little blame attached to them as possible. Clearly, they're not going to fire him because the, the fans would go mad and then they have to carry the can. They want Village Boas to resign. But he's in no rush. I mean, mm. it, uh, the reports say in France that he's already been offered an absolute fortune by the potential new owners of Newcastle United to go and coach them. Now, we'll, we'll come on to someone else in French football who's been offered an absolute fortune by Newcastle United to, to join in, in a little minute. And... The, the thought of that actually warms my heart quite a lot because the idea of um, Village Boas being in charge of Newcastle, um, Sir Bobby would have loved it. He would have absolutely loved it, and it's it's, it's quite it's quite a nice idea. But Village Boas is, is is under contract. He wants to make sure that all his staff are looked after in any potential severance as well. So. Um, even if they do go, there are some conversations to be had. But really, it's all about how lo- who loses the least face in this. I mean, I think we can say that <laughs> however this ends, we all know who's going to lose the most face in this. But, yeah. you know, it's all comparative. Can I just say that if AVB rocks up at Newcastle United <clears throat> and at the behest of Steve Bruce losing his job, you will be able to see the Fleet Street explosion from space. And I, for one, <laughs> will bloody enjoy it. But speaking of, um, as you alluded to a second ago, Andy, speaking of sporting directors in France leaving, um, like a Eurostar train on its way to Paris, Louis Campos has just departed Lille. Um, and it was widely expected that the highly rated Portuguese would be joining his pal Jose Mourinho at Spurs. And I think several Spurs fans out there still hold out hope that that is the case. But that's far from confirmed yet because, as the top brass alluded to a second ago, there is a Newcastle-shaped spanner being thrown into the works. Now, obviously, that's takeover dependent. um, But Campos does have a lot of options. One of the most highly rated sporting directors in Europe. Um, been responsible for a number of amazing signings and players um, going on to do great things, um, particularly at Lille, but also at Monaco. Andy, give us a quick um, Lewis Campos 101, and then after that, confirm or dash the dreams of Spurs fans everywhere, will you? Um, I would be delighted to. Um, he's someone who coached from quite an early age, so he's a sort of, I guess you could say kind of, kindred spirit of of Jose Mourinho as well as a very close friend of him which is at least partly where the Tottenham speculation has has come from Um, 
obviously it's developed around the fact that they they have had a firm interest in him and and tried to to bring him over from from Lille. Um, and what he's done in the game is is is, is amazing because you know you're, you're looking at a guy who uh, was 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 a coach um, back in Portugal, uh, and then um, he went on to um, do some work scouting for um, Real Madrid under Mourinho. But it's it's the Monaco period why why we know him really because um, he brought in so many incredible players uh, around that that time and players that managed to be sold on for an for an absolute fortune um obviously you look at um bernardo silva uh tom lamar uh benjamin mendy who they like trebled their money money on in in, in the space of a year well yeah that's when you come on to lille um so it it, it did a great job i've got a list of them here andy and i just chucked them all into one big mix i didn't sort of separate them out by club but tiago mendes Rafael leal did you proceed that sadibe there's loads of them yeah there there are and um he's he's very well connected and very well liked in, in in the game now when when it comes to the tottenham bit um, obviously, he didn't get to go to Tottenham earlier in, in, in the year. And um, Christophe Galtier, who is absolutely incandescent about the way in which his two assistants uh, left Lille to, to, to go to Tottenham. And the club are very unhappy about it as, as, as well. Because, of course, Mourinho had been a regular visitor to Lille while he'd been out of work. And he thought, oh, he's just been social. <laughs> and then... Yeah, <laughs> obviously you figure out ha 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 what the grand plan was, and um, yeah, they're, they're piqued by that. Um, and the, the the club guaranteed what one hundred and forty percent, I think it was, that uh, Luis Campos would not follow them to Tottenham. Now he has carried on working with Lille, and um, he's, he's carried on working closely with um, Gerard Lopez, the, 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 the boss, um, the, the majority owner of, of, of Lille since then. But I, th- I think the point to make in terms of him making a, a decision on where he's going next is he certainly felt in France that nothing imminent is in the offing because he'd politely said no to Newcastle United a, a few weeks ago. Um, but he'd, he'd not ruled out collaboration in future so watch this space i suppose um and i I think the same is 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 maybe the case with with tottenham because um i would imagine that he might spend a little bit of time out of the game sort of reconsidering what he wants to do next because remember he, he sort of spent some some time out after leaving monaco before taking the the lille job and I think that the thing to understand here is that he didn't leave because he had another place to go to. He left because he's frustrated about what's happening at the club, about certain personal relationships and certain working relationships um, at board level at Lille. And the other thing that he's reportedly very unhappy about is the way that it's going in, in, in French football. So the way that the the season's finished. And this is a guy who would have imagined that he'd be in the sporting director of a Champions League team next season. And the way that the season's 
ended has finished Lille's chances of that. And you look at Lille, there was one point between them and Wren, who eventually get the third place and get in the Champions League or get in the qualifiers of the Champions League for the first time ever. And Lille were on a roll when when the season was was brought to its, its premature end. So we've heard, as you referred to earlier, all the noise from Jean-Michel Olas, and my goodness, we've been able to hear it from over the channel. Uh, the noise from Amiens, who feel they've been unfairly relegated. But Lille are one of the quieter victims in this. And it's something that's affected everything. It's affected, um, in terms of Luis Campos, it's affected him from a sense in what he wants to do in the future in terms of his ambitions. It's clearly affected the budget, as this situation has for, for everyone. But not only the fact that everyone has to dial down their desires, but the fact that he's not able to attract on a Champions League level. Then there was the the chat last week about with AVB presumed to be leaving Marseille at some point. Um, that um, There was a story that Christophe Galtier had been contacted by Marseille. He's a former player of Marseille, of, of, of course. And my goodness, what a butcher he was as a player. Um, <laughs> so all these little things of unsettled Luis Campos. Now, it, it doesn't seem he's had a long-term... He's, he's had a plan over a long time to to leave Lille. So like just like last week, him and um, Gerard Lopez were doing a, a Zoom where they were deciding how they were going to go about the transfer market um, this summer. But I think all these little things have mounted up and I think he's just found it too much. And when that is the case, to me, it makes much better sense. He steps back, has a think about things. And because we don't know when next season's going to start, we don't really know what's going on with the transfer market at at the moment. I don't think it would be enormously costly to his future employment prospects. And bear in mind that it is like Obi-Wan Kenobi in football. If you're not there, you become more powerful than you could possibly imagine, which happened oh, yeah, to 100%. Guardiola, Tuchel, and a lot worse coaches and sporting directors than them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So his his legend is only going to be augmented while he's he's out of the game. I, I think he might have a little pause here. All right, well, that's very nicely summed up. And that is the end of OTC this week. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Don't forget you can get extra content about European football uh, over on our social channels. Andy always records a nice video or two of some of the stories that didn't quite make it into today's show. And there is extra content in the shape of the mailbag show for our Patreon subscribers. And to get access to that, it's patreon.com forward slash football ramble daily thank you very much indeed for keeping this company this thursday we look forward to talking to you at the same time next week we will be back with the preview show tomorrow of course and back with the blizzard show on saturday and a nice little treat for you on sunday as well it never stops here on football ramble daily that's the daily part of the name thank you very much andy thank you and we'll see you again soon This was a Stakhanov production.